Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. All right, Mark Fry, uh, thanks for joining us on This Emergency Life. And this week on the podcast, uh, John has John Thompson has dug himself out from underneath his postgraduate <laughs> marking to join us on the podcast for the first time. Welcome aboard, John, as well. Thanks, Cliff. Very exciting. Mark, perhaps you could start by introducing yourself. Oh, thank you very much. And thank you for the warm invitation and how exciting to speak to the emergency community. My name is Margaret Fry and I'm the Director of Research and Practice Development for Northern Sydney Local Health District, which is based sort of metropolitan Sydney. I'm also a Professor of Nursing, a conjoint appointment between the University of Technology Sydney and Northern Sydney Local Health District. And in my role, I'm part of it is to build the workforce capacity across the health district in terms of research activities and quality improvement projects to build their skills in leadership and research activities. Perhaps you could start off with telling us how um, your colleagues and your friends and yourself are doing in New South Wales EDs at the moment. Look, it's challenging times and you know, we are certainly thinking of Victoria and the rest of the world that's so badly affected with COVID. I think in terms of New South Wales, we uh, have been living on the cusp for the last few weeks to see if COVID cases escalate. But behind the backgrounds with that is, like all emergency departments, shifting practices to manage routine care, but now routine care plus COVID. And it's certainly changing our practices, our workflows, our roles, our ways of working, particularly in areas such as resuscitation and ensuring all patients are safe, not just those coming in without COVID, but all patients are safe, but challengingly, all staff are safe. And so the challenge, I think, for emergency care is to deal with the everyday concerns, injuries, conditions that would routinely come through our EDs, but also to change work practices in relation to managing COVID patients and reducing the risk firstly to other patients, reducing the risk secondly to staff and ensuring that those staff, many emergency staff have conditions, medical conditions themselves. So it really is ensuring the vulnerabilities of our healthcare clinicians remain safe and optimised to ensure their wellbeing, but also deliver appropriate, timely and efficient care to those with COVID and the rest of our core bread and butter. So with that, across all our health districts is really changes to policy, looking at sort of hot and cold areas, we commonly call them in Australia at the moment, looking at co-located areas where, for example, fast track might be pulled out of the emergency department for those who clearly um, demonstrate that they don't have COVID by obviously the checking and the questioning and screening that we're required to undertake. So there's significant background challenges in terms of workflow, new policies, equipment to ensure patients are safe, that staff know them, 
obviously ensuring that the usage of PPE is appropriate and keeping the ED's um, workload turning over and the timely admission or discharge of patients. So it is really challenging times in those areas, I think. It, it, I, I think um, I completely agree with you. And I think you're in a position in New South Wales at the moment that we were in a few few months ago where um, we were in that highly anxious state of having made all of these preparations but yet don't really know how they're going to work in anger and um, you're in that position of thinking okay well we've done this we've moved fast track to a different part of the geographically to a different part of the hospital but how's it actually going to work so uh, completely we completely empathize with where you and your colleagues are at at the moment. Yeah, it is really challenging and it is sort of that constant planning for that big wave to come but we just haven't sort of got there, thank goodness, and thank goodness for the people of New South Wales. But it's that planning of have we got enough ventilators, have we got enough ICU beds, all of the um, PPE that obviously is required to care for these patients, the technology is required. So it is challenging. and. Um, but I hope it remains more in the planning phase and that overwhelming the system doesn't occur. Um, talking about getting busy, um, I've heard you described as the type of nurse you want on shift when the place is really jumping. And um, I, I, I completely understand that that might feel a bit embarrassing to have somebody say that to you, but I heard this said about you. Um, I know that I've worked with many ED nurses and doctors that I have said or referred to in a similar way. Um, what does a characterization like that mean to you and, and how do you think we can grow those sorts of traits in our future ED uh, workforce? Look, I think being thought well of by your colleagues is just the greatest accolade any clinician can have. So being thought well or being wanted to be around and part of the team, I think is a great compliment. But in a sense, what does that mean? I guess for me, I think it first starts with knowledge and it is about being an expert in your field. And sometimes we rush that, but it really is important to gather the knowledge of your discipline and to really hone and refine that. And you see that when in a clinician, when their speed doesn't compromise quality or risk or um, capacity to manage. And I think that in terms of, you know, if you want someone on that shift where it's frantic, I think it's because the breadth of knowledge that that individual has can account for any event that might be occurring. So for those for those. In that situation, I think it's about, you know, a good, for the mixed EDs, a good paediatric as well as adult knowledge. I think it's knowledge in the range from fast track to resuscitation. I think it's also, though, about maintaining your own pulse when things around you are getting out of control. And often I think the first skill of an emergency nurse is to control your own pulse so that you can lead 
and get through the activities and tasks of the work that needs to be done. I think it's also I, I firmly believe in supporting and being a part of the team. I don't think it's ever about one individual and so it's a great compliment to support a team, to support your colleagues, to rally, to lift, to manage the workload if your workload's a bit less, help those to get through the workload to keep patients safe. And I think it's that critical element of valuing the quality of patient care. And so when it's busy, you know, it is all hands on deck. And I think that's what I love about emergency work. I also think it's about championing best quality. And even if activities are low, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be driven to provide the best quality of care for your patients. And it's just more challenging when the workload and the volume of patients are busier. But I think if that's centre and foremost, it creates a common bond, a common value, and you bring with that expertise not and expert knowledge that then allows you to um, build up speed but maintain the quality of care. So I think it's generally a combination of, you know, expert knowledge across the field of our discipline of emergency care. It's the support and being a team player and everyone's there to do a great job, but we've all got to do it together. And I think it's about also always being solution focused when you're in emergency care. And so for me, it is about in those high peak activities, allowing yourself to be solution driven and lateral thinking rather than the workloads a barrier to quality. And in fact, it's it's when you have those peak times that the focus on quality actually needs to be amped up, dialed up quite a bit. Um, you mentioned earlier there um, about rushing it. What did you mean by that? Um, in terms of rushing, oh, I'm not sure, Cliff. <laughs> what, what do you mean rushing it? So I think workload often makes us feel rushed, but I agree, you can, can't lose sight of quality even when it's busy. And we're all individually responsible and accountable for that. And you can't, even when we feel like we're rushing, you can't, I think as an emergency clinician in keeping the patient safe, allow you allow yourself to slide. I think you've got to maintain your standards and the quality of your care and you've got to individually be held accountable for that. And I think that's really important. Exactly. And we're, we're kind of all about control. And I think, you know, for, I think, I'm sure I've said this before on the podcast, but for, for those outside ED, maybe a ward nurse comes down to the ED, it does look quite frenetic and quite out of control. Whereas in fact, if we don't have that tight control, the whole machine doesn't, doesn't work. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Great. Mark, your work spans such a broad reach and you've achieved so much, so many awards and you still are. So, for example, uh, just last year you achieved the New South Wales Health Award 2019 for improving the patient experience. Uh, You achieved the 2019 Leadership Award 
um, for in emergency nursing through the College of Emergency Nursing Australasia. Uh, in 2014, you achieved the New South Wales Nursing Excellence Award for Excellence and in Innovation in Research. And that's just a few. I haven't named all of them there because that would probably take up the whole podcast. <laughs> um, it would be really interesting to hear any career or personal advice that you would give to any early career nurse who wanted to follow in your footsteps. What a great question. And I think <laughs> it, it's important for all of us to mentor the future leaders in our fields. And so the advice I think firstly is become an expert in your field. When you sit at the table, you want to be recognised as a clinical expert. And sometimes we want to rush that, but I think it is important to be recognised for the quality of your knowledge and the acumen of your clinical expertise. So I think that's really important. And you can't get that in a few months and you can't get it just with a course. It requires not just knowledge through degrees, but also experience and learning to manage the range of conditions that we get exposed to in our emergency field. But I think what's also really important is build your credibility and build trust of the quality clinician you are. And again, that's about being a team player. It's about exploring or willing to explore practice with your colleagues in your area and look for gaps that can be improved. I think also it's about building networks. For some, you may want to be, you may want to pursue research, for example, but you don't have to do a research degree to do that. But people in your clinical areas will be undertaking research and maybe buddy and be mentored and group with those people. In terms of qualifications, I think it is important for you to go on to do some postgraduate studies in your clinical field. But one of the things that I think is really useful, and we don't often do this with ourselves and with our colleagues, and that's to think about whose job would you like in two or five or ten years' time? And when you think about that, it really changes how you view the world and maybe what um, what qualifications you might pursue, what opportunities you might pursue. And I think that often as nurses, we look to sort of cement ourselves in the job we've got and so do qualifications that support our current job rather than look at what doors do I want to open into the future. So with that, the other area for early career nurses is it is really important, I think. You know, sometimes it's important to consider secondments and look for new opportunities that change the way you look at the world. Look to polish some of your emergency skills. So if you're feeling that uh, paediatrics could be strengthened, would your nurse unit manager or nurse manager agree to a secondment into paediatrics for a little while? Would they agree to a secondment to ICU for, you know, a month, two months, three months? So you can really polish other skills that will create leadership capacity for when you're in the emergency department. So I think that's really important. The other thing is 
as nurses, we don't often signal and flag our interest for the future. So you might see an opportunity in your department to go for an EOI, for example, and you may think, I can't do it yet, but there's no harm in signaling to your nurse manager that maybe in the future I wouldn't mind looking to do a secondment as the nurse educator or as the CNC. And so you begin to be on other people's radar. So I think it's really important to consider secondments and to consider EOIs across your organisation that just may open your opportunities for leadership positions in the future. What we can't do is think I'm going to become a CNC and learn to become a leader. No one will employ you in that role. What they want to know is that you already have that skill set and you're going to fly if you're given the opportunity of this new role. So I think that's really important. And finally, it is about building your networks to create that clinical credibility, to create scholarly credibility, to create sort of strategic thinking and to create collaborative opportunities as well as to create opportunities that you may be able to pursue in new jobs. I think that's Are really they... good. I like, um, sorry, Cliff. No, no, go ahead, John, sorry. Um, I think it's really good that uh, it's about good advice about positioning yourself, getting yourself ready for the position. Like, like uh, I remember when I first started out in my, in my nurse practitioner pathway, like a lot of comments I heard, well, well there's no position, I'm not going to go and do the masters or things like that. So it's, I think it's really important that you do position, you get yourself positioned ready for the job. And I, and I also like the idea of um, taking a secondment or at least experiencing a different emergency department to what you have worked in. So you can see that there's different ways to do things. So that's great advice. Thanks for that. Yeah, I think I think that's all I wanted to touch on was the importance of um, broadening your horizons a little bit. I think if we go from undergrad, maybe do two rotations in your grad year and then do a transition to specialty practice in ED and then never leave ED, you, you actually get this... Um, uh, sort of confirmation bias that your place is the busiest place in the world and nobody else is struggling and it, it couldn't be further from the truth and it gives you a great insight when you ring up the ward and say I've got um, another patient for you it gives you a good insight into why they're receiving that message uh, you know in a maybe a, a kind of deflated way oh no not another patient from ED. And it is leadership often we think of it as nurses leadership is about my clinical expertise, but it's only just one of the armaments in the repertoire of the quality of my leadership. And so there are other dimensions that we need to be exposed to and allowed to refine and develop. And sometimes you need to look at other landscapes to be able to achieve that. Great, thanks for that. Um, so really good advice there. Just before we move on, do, did you go off and do some secondments when you hadn't? Uh... Yes, yeah, so I come to emergency from a background of nearly six years in ICU and then I was the enteral parenteral venous access CNC. Then I went into the educators, into emergency and the educators role and, in fact, for... At the time, there was 
sort of it was pre all the trauma systems and I thought at St Vincent's where I was uh, in Sydney at the time there was no one looking at trauma we didn't even know what trauma we had so I created a whole trauma system nothing to do with my role but it was just we needed to do that and understand the elements of multi-trauma and in fact from that which you know, I never imagined, but from that I was regraded back to CNC in um, emergency. And so, you know, but sometimes you don't have to move as well. I did the PhD to sort of broaden my understanding of emergency care in a, a more scholarly dimension, looking at it in terms of how could I be a better teacher in emergency. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing, but you've got to expose yourself so that the way you think and the way you view the world is challenged. And so therefore from that, I think you become a much more, um, much more, sort of not greater leader, but I think you become a much more considered leader. What's been your experience of practice change um, related to pain management in the ED over um, your career? Look, it's an interesting question, Cliff. Thanks for that. It's um, it certainly dramatically changed and really some of the studies now have passed into history and their origins of some of our pain management practices. Many emergency clinicians today won't even appreciate that once we couldn't do that. So when I introduced nurse-initiated morphine into Australia, we needed to get TGA approval. I did it because I did an audit which showed how poor we were, um, both in adults and paediatrics. The ethics committee wouldn't allow me to provide pain management at that time, which was nurse-initiated. That was the study. Um, to paediatrics, I wasn't allowed to. Um, so they continued to have suboptimal analgesia. So I guess how has it shifted? Well, once upon a time a nurse couldn't initiate pain management beyond paracetamol and that was my history and people in severe pain as my audit in the very early years of my career showed. So I did a study of nurse-initiated morphine but how has it changed? Well, I wouldn't do that study today. Um, I would have done a study that looked at a regime of pain management. So because it was so new, after this initiated morphine, I did a study that I realised we provided Panadol and we provided morphine but we provided nothing in between. So then I did a study of nurse-initiated um, Panadine Ford. And what I realised today is I was wrong in doing those studies and I should have looked at a much more holistic approach to pain management rather than just sort of looking at targeted vulnerable groups. So if I was to change, I'd say we should have looked at a study that encompassed pain assessment across the categories, whatever tool you wanted to use, of sort of zero to ten, what you know, a visual analog, a verbal analog scale, and look at a range of options in terms of analgesics. So that would be my first thing looking with the retroscope, what I would have changed. 
That said, how have we changed? Well, our scope of practice has emergency nurses routinely providing nurse-initiated analgesics, including parental narcotics. How amazing is that? You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was unheard of. And I think even in Tasmania, their laws only changed now about five years ago. So in terms of it, it's quite you know, it's quite radical that we can do that. However, that said, I think that we approach pain management very broadly with the same brush. And I don't think that's significantly changed. So what do I mean by that? I mean, there are vulnerable groups that still are at risk of suboptimal analgesics, to be honest, because the way we assess. So for example, Patients that have um, cognitive impairment, you know, you really can't rate their scale using a verbal um, rating scale, which is common throughout Australia and internationally for assessment of pain. So how do we manage patients that can't assess their pain verbally to us that we can understand, such as cognitive impairment, vulnerable ethnic groups, paediatrics, and so I think there are still elements of pain management and vulnerable groups that we should target and look at. I think in terms of the repertoire of pain management, my study that I spoke about um, for Panadine 4 was the only S48 that I was allowed for the nurses to initiate at that time. Um, but we all know that a certain group of patients can't even metabolise that drug. So today I wouldn't be using that drug. It also has other side effects that are quite unwanted and there are other drugs or analgesics that would be better. So those early studies I had to specifically target to get ethics approval and if I was doing them today I'd be much more holistic in my approach and I would also look at vulnerable groups such as cognitive impairment, such as paediatrics, is there better ways, quicker ways that we can be administering analgesics? I think one of the greatest benefits of medicine today is the relief of pain and there should be no human suffering due to pain. Many people listening to that might sit and say, our emergency department's great. Well, I would challenge you to go to your departments, look at your audits because I sat there saying the same thing until I got the evidence of the data in my ED, which demanded that we improve. So it doesn't mean the strategies aren't out there. It doesn't mean they're not ready to implement and you can translate that evidence. You don't have to start like I did originally at the start for many of these studies. But we need to prove that we're doing the best we can and analgesia, I think, should be a nursing KPI or a nursing performance indicator for our EDs. Yeah, and we found in our ED that we were quite good at the low-level pain or quite good at the severe pain. And just like you were saying, that middle ground there, um, the sort of, you know, five, six, seven out of ten pain we weren't managing well. Um, we, we introduced a nurse-initiated combination of mm -hmm. medications, um, which worked really well. So it was endone, ibuprofen and paracetamol. Um, and also I completely agree there around our time to analgesia um, 
definitely we all think we're doing quite well until you look at uh, your time to analgesia for paediatrics mm. in a mixed in a mixed department and quite often they're um, a little quite, well they're atrocious mm. um, same with the older person and same with differently abled people um, so th- thank you for that that's been uh, that's been a really good insight <laughs> it has it's uh it's hopefully it'll put some fire in people's souls to get them uh to get them doing some work around this because I, I agree i think it should be a nurse a nurse-led kpi um uh that that's kind of that kind of demonstrates the benefits of nursing in the emergency department definitely um in terms of research and this question probably um it's probably a, a little bugbear of mine marg and but i noticed that you've done a lot of research relating to cultivating and building research capacity what do you consider to be the main drivers that might give agency to nurses leading and or participating in research in the clinical environment look i think that's a great question actually and probably for my career the focus has been around mentorship and guiding um, different clinicians across a variety of disciplines actually not just emergency so in terms of how do you build a research career I think it's important to and now there are such fantastic role models around Australia. And I think in terms of Australia, it is leading the way with the quality of emergency research led by nurses. Extraordinary. And so how do you begin that career? I think the one thing I'd say is have a go. Maybe we've made it a bit scarier than it should be. And will your first study be as good as your last? Let's hope not. It is a learning environment. It is a learning curve. And I think have a go, but drive it with your passion for quality care. So pursue the areas that you personally love. Pursue, if you love recess, what is the gap within that practice and pursue that. Pursue it if you love paediatrics. What are the gaps in service? And we just spoke about pain management. So I think in terms of building a research career, it really is about thinking what is your gap in your service and explore it. How do we do that? Well, like all things, have a go. But around your clinical areas, around your hospitals, around your environments or hospital systems, there will be people who can support, can mentor, can guide you. And sometimes we just don't ask for help. It's surprising how many people are willing to help you, but we've got to know that you want our involvement. So with that, There'll be many people in your emergency department wanting to look at practice. There'll be already many people exploring practice and doing research. So could you buddy with them? Could you help them? So one of the things in my career, I was as passionate about medical or allied health research as I was about nursing research. And part of building that research culture in your department is being supportive of a research culture. That's not my nursing culture, that's a research culture. And so you look to your medical staff who might be interested in joining with you and giving you some guidance. In many health districts, there are people like myself, professors of nursing that can help guide you, mentor you through those processes. Many of you will have forged great links with academics who are based in your local universities 
go back to them, ask them, would you help me with this study? I want to look at this. I'm not talking about signing up for a research degree. I'm just talking about a project you'd like to conduct in your clinical areas. Finding those mentors is really helpful and can guide you through the process of what it is to undertake a research project. But that said, many uh, quality improvement projects are fantastic and, in my view, can be research. And so don't just go, oh, it's a QI project, oh, it's just a project. It's just a continuum. The rigour that we put around it often is what shifts it from a quality improvement project to research, but it's easy enough to do that across your projects with your teams. But some of the barriers are we just don't ask for help. Most hospitals have libraries. Usually the librarians are outstanding. They'll help guide you how to collect your data, what might be the best systematic approach to be able to ensure you're collecting it from the databases. They, yeah, Health districts might have reference manager systems that you can download and use. Some will be familiar for those who have gone to university. Um, it might be that you want to look at um, going to the evidence and thinking, this is a great study. I'd love to do this in my department. Keep that on your lap as you're thinking about your project. And so you can but use that as a template to guide your thinking and ask yourself the questions that will make your quality improvement or research program or research study more rigorous and answer the question that you would like to answer for your department and provide a solution to improve practice. That's great. Um, Can, would, it, would it be okay if I, if I just t touched on one other thing there? Is that okay, John? Sorry, yeah, go I know for you're it. champing at no, a bit to, to <laughs> ask another question. Um, what about the idea of uh, nurses... Um, ability to achieve relative to the opportunity that's there i know you know for example the doctors have it hardwired into their into their practice into their role that they do some teaching that they do some research for example you know the facems used to do that thing called the 410 yeah. where they'd have to do a research project we haven't quite got that right yet in nursing i i don't think what what are your thoughts on that look i think it's true cliff we don't have the broadly the view of our profession that part of that is to generate the evidence that underpins the very constructs of our practice. I think we're getting there and the calibre of people like yourselves, Cliff and John particularly, and even doing this is setting that bar that says actually research is part of our practice. I think it's often the easy to let go, but you've got to value it You've got to prioritise it. I often use this as an example. If your director of nursing came to you and said, there's this fantastic new meeting, I want you to be involved, I'm sorry, it is going to take an hour a week, but would you participate in that committee? It's very rare a person will go, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. So research has to become a 
very much a part of your fabric. So could you schedule it into your diaries as a meeting and go, that is when I'm going to do that research? I think also certain roles have privileged where we are able to defend the need to do that research. In New South Wales, we call them, for example, clinical nurse consultants. And one of their domains that they must report on is actually their research activities. So in our clinical areas, we must be dependent on those clinical leaders to championing the staff to rally behind them and but obviously with them in leading inquiry into practice and produce the research that tells us how good we are or the solutions for the research that we need to improve in our practice. And so, for example, it's for my days in emergency as the nurse consultant. Now, I think I published about 25 studies, but I always had nurses on those studies, you know, interested in wanting to improve practice, improve the quality of service in our ED. And many of the nurses that were there through the years that I was there as a consultant or nurse practitioner, we would undertake these research studies as a team and produce the publications that we did. So I think it does require the catalyst and often it's our clinical leaders and those roles that have a mandate in them to do research. It's not just about critiquing research. It's not always about translating research. Sometimes it is about leading it and testing new things like the nurse-initiated x-rays, like the nurse-initiated panadine for, for example, like the nurse-initiated nurse practitioner models of care that I've introduced. Mm. That's great. It's really refreshing to hear. <laughs> I um I think when I when I said earlier, like my bugbear, it's the it's kind of the the comments, the blanket comments that I sometimes hear from nurses is, oh, that research isn't for me. And I kind of I think that it's fair enough, research isn't for everyone, but your practice needs to incorporate research. So you really need to be involved in some way. You shouldn't kind of put this blanket. I'm not interested in research, so I'm not going to do anything to kind of support it or contribute it and things like that. So it's really refreshing to hear that, you know, um, that you've mentored so much and that you've always ensured that nurses are kind of involved in your investigative teams and that you're kind of building the next uh, the next um, cohort of nurse researchers, which is really great to hear. If so I, thank you. If I, can add, I think it's really important. We, we often say that, John, you're right, but every one of us, not even nursing, every one of us are researchers. If my fridge broke down, I would research the best fridge for my family. If I wanted a new phone, I would research what's the best phone. If I want a new exercise bike, I would research what's the best exercise bike for my condition or to build capacity or aerobic function. We're all researchers. What we don't think about it is to bring it into the hospital system. And I think you're right. It can be about translation, but sometimes it needs active input. And so you've got to look for solutions. And when we're looking for solutions, almost by definition, that's research. Yeah. 
Definitely. Thank you so much for that. I've got one more question, and it's a bit of a long one, so I do apologise, but just bear with, bear with me. Um, so as you're aware, 2020s as uh, given the title the International Year of the Nurse, and the World Organisation State of Nursing Report this year, 2020, which was the first one, states that no global health agenda can be realised without concerted and sustained efforts to maximise the contributions of the nursing workforce and their roles within the interprofessional health teams. To do so requires policy interventions that enable them to have maximum impact, impact and effectiveness by optimising nurses' scope and leadership. Given your expertise with leadership and implementing innovative models of care, along with your experience and interest in advanced nursing practice, what do you see as the main barriers for nurses being able to work to their full scope of practice? Look, I think there's two key barriers. So I'll address the first barrier. I think sometimes it's ourselves, John. I think Often it's too easy to stand in the shadows, whisper to the doctor and get the doctor to take the account of what practice we need to change in our emergency areas and instead stand beside the doctors and say, we need to do this. So I think some of it is about how we perceive ourselves within the health system and we still at times see ourselves as the underling, the poor cousin. And I think there's so much evidence of the quality and difference that we make. And for me, one of the barriers is we really don't latch on to the pride of nursing and the difference we make. And each nurse should be able to articulate that difference and the quality that we deliver to patients that improve their outcomes. So I think that's the first thing. It's almost a maturity of our own profession. I think we still need some work in, but that doesn't mean there's not significant structural barriers that keep us in the shadows. And I think it is a constant battle and people like yourself, John, particularly will change this. And that's where nurse practitioners are putting us on the same stage as all other health independent or autonomous health workers and the level of nurse practitioning and the difference that um, nurse practitioners are making now across every discipline like there's almost in Australia now not a discipline or that does not contain nurse practitioners which is extraordinary when you think it's not that long ago we were still piloting in 95 I think it was were they any good and could we use them and are they safe so I think that's extraordinary and even some of getting them into the different areas are the challenges of nurses don't articulate nurse practitioners as that career pathway as that ultimate expert in practice. And so I think that's really important for ourselves to begin to champion the differences we make, the quality we deliver, the outcomes we achieve, and that nursing can stand on its own two legs and say the contribution is profound. And particularly as we're almost the largest workforce uh, around the world. So I think that's important. But as I said, there are some structural things that need to change. I think while medicine sees itself as the dominant 
care provider, independent care provider, there will always be barriers and individuals that we've got to fight to prove we can do things. I think we've got to make our work visible and we've got to um, show the difference we make in outcomes. So for nurse practitioners, my challenge is we've probably now surpassed the need to describe what we do. We probably now need to actually test and show that the outcomes we make, uh, you know, with non-inferiority trials, for example, that are at least equal. We don't have to prove to be better, but we must prove we're as equal as other independent providers. So with that, I think there's hospital structures, often the CEs, the LHD, uh, the health district management team don't know what nurse practitioners do. So my question is, how do we showcase that? How do we make it visible? What are the health districts reporting on? What nursing and, mid and midwifery is visible across our health districts of showing impact? And I think that has to be pushed up in our nursing midwifery disciplines. So for example, I do an annual report of nursing and midwifery every year of the outcomes of activities across my health district. And the visibility now in our health district from when I first started is quite profound. And you can think that doesn't make a difference, but actually it does because you become on people's radars who can actually find funds for new nurse practitioner models, find opportunities for scholarships, support new um, innovative solutions for practice where they go, oh, maybe a nurse practitioner model would be good for this. So we've got to become, we're invisible, one of the key structural barriers within our department, within our hospital, within our health districts, we've got to become more visible and that output of emergency work and what we are needs to do. So for the first time in my health district, I've um, asked to actually create an annual report over the last couple of years of what is being done in our emergency in our emergency departments across our districts, which will be hard to believe a first. So in terms of it, there's individual turf wars that we need to be careful. You know, we're we're being told we're not allowed to do things, and yet, for example, podiatrists, um, uh, physios pharmacists are all going to be prescribing and yet a nurse I think why can't they prescribe every over-the-counter medicine for example like it's extraordinary that we're not championing these sorts of activities when all the other disciplines are poaching at our heels so it is really important to go what is it about nursing that we want to be able to work to our full scope the other thing that I think we're not doing as well is we're not enabling all career pathway steps into our EDs so, for example, I think enrolled nurses should be working in emergency departments and many have them, but many don't. And yet imagine a career pathway where you can be an enrolled nurse and aspire to be the nurse practitioner or the nurse consultant and have the full breadth of visibility of what it is to work to your scope across the career pathways of nursing. How fantastic. So some of those structural barriers we impose on ourselves, which really 
there's no grounds for. The other thing is I think structurally we need to have an appetite to push our boundaries. So I still have nurses occasionally saying, oh, no, it's okay, we always do it that way. As emergency clinicians, we should be take that as a red rag to a bull and go, absolutely not. Let's test and see what's going out there. Could we be doing something different? So I think it's critically important that when we think of barriers, we think strategically, what do we want to chip away at? We can't chip away at everything at first. So it's a bit like our research, our publications, our brands and changing practice. You can't change all practice. It's silly to think you want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. It may not be everything needs to change. So we've got to be as clinical leaders strategic. What am I going to chip away maybe in the next six months as opposed to the next 12 months, as opposed to the next two to five years. So for me, changing practice, changing scopes, I couldn't do. I introduced 45 extended practices as the nurse consultant, changing practice. I couldn't do it all at once. But over many, many years, I chipped away. So one of the barriers is it all feels overwhelming. That's okay, it is. So just pick the thing you most want to change and just do that one thing. If it's about your scope of practice, what's the key thing that you feel you're not able to work to your practice and full extent of what your scope allows? Then just pick that one thing to chip away at. Otherwise, the world, like everything, it just feels too overwhelming. So they say, how do you eat an elephant? A bite at a time. Good advice. I um, I, I like I like your first point. How it's it's sometimes it's us, and I think that kind of um, hit home with me. So we um, we're trying to establish like a nurse prac leadership group forum type thing, and it's about making us drive that rather than waiting for nursing executive to come and help us with that. It's like um. I, I agree. I think we need to drive that. And I think um, one kind of comment that I quite like <laughs> is sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. So as long as you're working along, you know, heading in the right direction, sometimes it's just better to ask for forgiveness. Correct. But in that instance, John, I, I think often we think someone's going to tell us to do that. And mm. across my own health district, Nurses are waiting for their directors of nursing to tell them. It's never going to happen. They're not interested. It's not on their radar. What will shock them is the proactivity of going, actually, we are just going to do this. And it's not even asking for forgiveness. It's a demonstration of leadership. And all that speaks to is the quality of the nurse practitioner of yourself and your colleagues to lift to that because that's what practice and the quality of service demands. Good advice. Thanks, Mark. It, it has been awesome advice, Mark, and we, we, we all, uh, uh, John and I and the listeners now, really see what uh, what will is uh, red rag to, to your ball. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. It's been really insightful um, and I think I've said this to almost every guest, I don't think this conversation's over. Um, I think we've got a lot to talk about in the future. My pleasure and thank you very much for the invitation. 
Thanks for listening in. Just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers. The music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and The Millions. Um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. If you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show, why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life.